0: So for the next few weeks we're starting a new series and I've called it Picture This because I found, you know, in learning there's different ways to learn. Sometimes we learn well when we have a uh, step-by-step instructions of how to do something. And other times, and there's other things we learn if if we get the principles and the concepts and the philosophy behind something down. But uh, the best way to learn, I think one of the most convenient ways to learn, is when we have a really good example of what we're trying to be, and we just imitate that example. And we're going to be studying the book of Philippians for the next several weeks. And I think the book of Philippians is a favorite book to a lot of people who read through the Bible. It's one of those places you can go back to. It's brief. It's to the point. Uh, And it gives us a great example of the christian life you know paul it was written by paul the apostle to the church at the city of philippi and you know paul had a variety of different experiences with the different churches he planted and as time wore on some he really stopped liking in fact he had a falling out with some of his uh, churches but the church at philippi was one that he always had the warmest feelings for and so when he writes this book to the, the church at Philippi, he's really thanking them and, and recounting and thinking warmly about his experience and his history with, with the church. You might, be, you might know that the, the book of Philippians is referred to as the Epistle of Joy, which is kind of an ironic title for it because the book of Philippians was written by Paul while he was sitting in prison. And awaiting a trial that would ultimately result in him experiencing uh, the death sentence, and yet he he reaches out to the church at Philippi, and he's uh, and he's thinking of them, and and I, I think in, you know, in all of our lives, our life we have these ups and downs, these high points and low points, and I think as Paul, as an old man sitting in prison, knowing that his days are numbered, he's looking back at his life, and he thinks that the church of Philippi and his experience there as one of the high points in his life. And so that's when when he writes this. This is printed in your program. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So this is the introduction to the letter. But what I want to focus on today, you know, Paul says, I remember... Our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I want to look at that very beginnings of the church at Philippi and how the church at Philippi came together in the very in the very first days because it's actually one of my favorite uh, church planting stories in the book of Acts. And what happened is, if you know the book of Acts, on in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, they have what we Presbyterians refer to as uh, the first Presbytery meeting. All all of the pastors get together and and they come up with an important decree. And the the decree is essentially that there's a direct path for Gentiles and non-Jews to become Christians. They don't have to become Jewish first, even though Christianity originated from from the Jews. And even though uh, Jesus obviously was a Jew... And, and the first Christians, most of them were Jewish, that they, they don't have to become Jewish first and then become Christians, but there's a direct path from wherever anyone is coming to God through Christ because of the gospel. And so that's that's the new mandate, the new affirmation that the apostles have come to at that first uh, church council. And then Paul and his band of merry men heads out on a missionary journey. And at first this missionary journey is frustrated. They want to go in a certain direction and it doesn't work out. And, and they had a plan they were going, going to pursue. They had a place they wanted to go. It do- doesn't work out. And so they're wondering you know, we, we thought we were going on God's mission and now God is, God's mission is getting all messed up here. And so what it says is that night they, they weren't sure what they were going to do. And then in Acts 16 it says, During the night Paul had a vision for a, from a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so the story of the planting of the church of Philippi, it starts with Paul's plans being frustrated and his plans kind of falling apart and not working out well, but that leads him to the place where God is on the move. That leads him to a place where God is working. And there's just a a basic lesson for all of us when life gets frustrating for us, when our plans aren't working out and when our intentions are kind of falling to to pieces, sometimes that's because God is pushing us in another direction to show us something that's bigger and greater than anything we have thought of. And as Paul arrives in Philippi, we see that his whole ministry there was led by the hand of God and led by the Spirit of God as he he went through things. Uh, Presumably, along the way in in Acts. during the time that the apostles were in Philippi, they had a a good number of converts and there was a solid church that was established there. But the way in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, which we're gonna be looking at, all he tells us about is three particular converts who who kind of set the tone for what that church was going to be. If you're familiar with the story, one was a, a lady named Lydia, one was a slave girl, and one was a prison guard. You really couldn't imagine a more unlikely group to come together, to get together, to uh, form a, you know, the initial nucleus of a new church. Uh, let me profile them to you. Lydia was a single female head of household. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She's described in Acts this way. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in, in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So she was a, a wealthy, established businesswoman, a single woman, head of household, you know, must have lived in a large fancy home in, in one of the best neighborhoods in Philippi, wherever that was. She was of Middle Eastern origin from the city of Thyatira, and uh, and and she was, was must have been accomplished, well put together, a, a, attractive, engaging person. The kind of person who, if you were recruiting the, the startup core for a new church, this is the kind of person you want. And so, so just like all of you, by the way. Just to make that clear. <laughs> but then, well, as Paul is walking along, there's this crazy girl who is possessed by a demon. She's a slave girl. She couldn't be more the opposite of Lydia. She's a victim of human trafficking. She's owned by her masters. She's a victim of demon possession. And it says, Paul says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days until Paul became annoyed. Now, you know, this poor little girl is... Like, like I say, the, the absolute opposite. She's the kind of person who, you know, walking the streets of the city, sometimes you just want to avert your eyes. Sometimes you just kind of don't want to know what's going on with a certain person. And I think probably Paul, like me, uh, as he went through the city, had places to go, he had things to do. There's some things you just don't even want to see, so you don't let yourself see him. But this little girl made Paul notice her, made Paul Respond to her, uh, and and uh, and so she became a part of that church. But but just as Lydia would have been of the highest social strata, this poor slave girl was of the absolute lowest. We don't know where she was from, uh, or what her even what her name was. You know, whereas Lydia was ensconced in uh, in a compound somewhere. This this lady would have lived in, uh, you know, the roadside motels or maybe just out of her car because she had no other options. She was not someone who was loved or known. She was just someone who was owned and used, a victim of human trafficking. And then there's the prison guard. Prison guards in these days, they were, what What happens is Paul gets thrown into prison, and uh, prison guards were uh, Roman military veterans, typically civil servants, and it turns out he was a patriarch of a large extended family there in Philippi. He wasn't rich, and he wasn't poor. He was one of those solid middle-class working guys. You know, If, if he was from around here, he'd definitely be from Bayonne. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> but but uh, imagine the, the three of these people, this prison guard, this, this little slave girl, and this, this business woman sitting in a room together in a new members class or, or a uh, church social like, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> <I> mean, like, <laughs> This is going to be a, a strange conversation. But these were the three, three of the people who kind of were emblematic of the church at Philippi. Think of the diverse paths to conversion that they had. Lydia was seeking God and she was getting together with other people to pray and Paul shows up at their group. He, he talks to them about the way of salvation and, and Lydia says, this makes sense, this is what I'm looking for, this Jesus person, and and she believes in him. And God opens her heart and she believes. The slave girl was the opposite of seeking God. She was possessed by a demon, but she has a power encounter with Paul and the demon is cast out of her. And then presumably the church embraced her, redeemed her from slavery, and, and they were able to include her into that body. She needed deliverance, and then she would have needed a lot of help after that. And then there was a jailer. He didn't need anything. He wasn't a, a seeker. He was a man of honor and strength. He was a man who had his life worked out for him, the patriarch of his big extended family. But then he was shaken. We see in their lives diverse ways that the Holy Spirit works and diverse ways that the gospel comes to different people. Lydia probably, as paul taught as paul went and taught her her and her group of friends had her eyes opened to the truth and the beauty of the gospel the grace and mercy that was available to her through christ the slave girl experienced power and deliverance and from a life of exploitation a life of being a lost girl. She then became part of a community and experienced probably love and care for the first time in her life. And the jailer, well, he wasn't a seeker. He had his life under control until it wasn't under control. And I think the first thing that got to the jailer was the example of Paul and Silas in the prison. In Acts 16, it says that what, what happened is Paul and Silas got arrested and, and then they got, got, got flogged by the professional torturers in the, uh, in the police department there in Philippi. And then it says, after they had been severely flogged, so they're dripping with blood, they're covered with bruises, they're all torn up, they're thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So he just takes these guys who've been all beaten up, and he, he, he doesn't even let them sit on the floor of, of a cell. They're, they're chained to the wall and, uh, and held in place, and, and they're just covered with, covered with the wounds from, from being beaten up. And then about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the other pra- prisoners are listening to them. And so these guys, rather than howling, rather than yelling, rather than whimpering, they're looking at this as an opportunity to have a prayer meeting and have an evangelistic encounter with the people who God has led them to, the other prisoners there in the prison. And so, so the jailer had to be thinking, who are these guys and what, what is going on with them? And then as the story goes, there, there's an earthquake and the jailer runs to the cells and realizes that this earthquake has opened up the gates and opened up the bars, and he assumes that all of his prisoners are are going to escape. And the ethic for the prison guards in that day and age was, was if your prisoners escaped, then you get the penalty that they would have had. And so the prison guard doesn't want to... to have to even face the consequences of what has happened. So he's just about, when he realizes his prisoners have escaped, he's just about to take out his sword and fall on it and take his own life. And Paul and Silas run out and say, don't harm yourself. We're we're all here. And that's when the prison guard says those famous words, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So, So these three people have these three wildly diverse conversion stories, wildly diverse testimonies, wildly diverse sets of needs, and then experiences of the power of the gospel. And yet they're bound together, not because they met Paul and his band of married men, they're bound together because through Paul and his friends, they met Jesus personally. They met Christ, and Christ works through Paul to meet each of these people where they are and bring them to faith. So they're all different, and yet they're all, what they have in common is they're all transformed. The slave is set free spiritually. She's set free socially, but then she's in need of support, in need of restoration. The jailer was a brutal guy, He comes in, these guys are dripping with blood, and he just locks them up and and tries to forget about them. But then after, after the earthquake, the first thing he does is he goes and he washes their wounds. He wouldn't have thought to wash them up or care for them when they were brought into his prison, but afterwards, his response to these guys, now he sees everybody differently, and he doesn't see see Paul and Silas as just as prisoners who he's got to watch, but he sees them as people who he can care for. And then Lydia, Miss Perfect, she, as soon as this happens, she looks at Paul and his band of merry men, and I imagine they were kind of scruffy, and she says, you guys can all come and stay at my house, you know, as long as you're in Philippi, stay with me. And so it says that from then on, everybody, all, Paul and his and his gang stayed in her compound and 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 she became one of the pillars in that church and so she went from being someone who was all perfect and had to control her life and and keep people at a distance to someone whose life was characterized by generosity and grace and love so We see a broad diversity in the backgrounds of these people, a broad diversity in their testimony, a broad diversity in their transformation, but a unity because they all met Jesus. Jesus was there for all of them. The gospel was transformational for all of them. And I I think it it tells us what the church is all about. Because, see, if the church is going to be a club, then, you know, when we're starting a club, we just want people who are exactly like us, you know, people who fit in with us. You know, every, all the white guys who golf can start a club for, for guys who golf, or, you know, or, or whatever your thing might, might be. But if the church is a family, and our shared DNA comes from the fact that God is our Father, then necessarily it's going to include a lot of different people who look much different on the outside because it's not something that you buy into it's not something that you rush it's it's a family that you're adopted into by the sovereign hand of God. And so that's what happens when we see the gospel at work. We see that there's no particular religious type. You know, I think it's, it's easy often to, to, to categorize people and say, okay, this is the religious type, and that person is possessed by demons. So apparently they're not the religious type or, you know... This this is a religious a religious type because because they're they're uh, into discussing questions of meanings and, and uh, the meaning of life and things like this and this guy's just a a prison guard so he's probably not the kind of guy who's going to sit through a Bible study or or go to church or things like that but there's there was no particular type there is no particular type because the gospel is for everybody. And part of the way we, we need to learn to see p- people is to see people the way Paul saw people and responded to people, that everybody is in need, even the strongest, even the, mo- even, even the people who are the most together, and even the people who are the most far gone are not out of reach of the power of the gospel. And so Lydia and her perfectionism, Lydia and her drivenness, Lydia and her desire to control things and to build a big... Big business meets Christ and he says to her, rest in me. The prison guard in his strength and with his military background and his honor culture is absolutely shaken in the midst of this catastrophe. And Jesus says to him, you can trust in me. And the slave girl who's never known love, never known care, Who's, who's been been tormented within from demons and from without by her owners, has Jesus come into her life and say, follow me to freedom. See, the gospel touches each of their lives. And so Paul is thinking about this. And he's decades later, decades after he planted this, and he's at the end of his life, you know, anticipating the end of his life, And he looks back fondly at the church of Philippi and he says, and I think that they taught him. They taught him about the power of the gospel. Like I said, Paul intentionally went to Lydia. It says that they they arrived in Philippi and he went to the place of prayer where there were, were devout people praying and seeking God. And those were the first people that he talked to. The slave girl, he only... He only noticed her because she was yelling at them and he got annoyed with her. And so, so she was so annoying that he cast the demon out of her. And, you know, prison guard, well, nobody goes to a new town hoping to meet the local prison guards. That's, that's, that's a bad weekend by most standards. But, uh, but, but Paul, those were the people who became the pillars and the emblems of God's grace in that church. Now, if you know something about the New Testament, you know about the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. He was Jewish in his background, and the Pharisees were the strictest sect among the Jews. They were basically professional religious men, and they were very doctrinaire. If you if you read the story of, of, of the life of Jesus, one of the things you see, the people he's constantly getting into fight with are the Pharisees. And so... Uh, so that was Paul's background, and they were also very highly nationalistic and very dogmatic about their theology. And the Pharisees had a prayer of thanksgiving. The phar- Pharisaical men had a prayer of thanksgiving, which is actually something that, that that people in this sect still pray to this day. And I'm not endorsing this. I don't approve this. Don't, don't uh, take this out as a clip and use it against me. But this is what Paul and the men of his ilk would pray in the morning when they woke up. Their little prayer of thanksgiving was, Father, I thank you that I'm not a slave and not a Gentile and not a woman. That was, that was their prayer of thanksgiving in the morning. And here Paul is convening his first this church in Philippi, and, and the pillars are what? A slave, a Gentile, and a woman. And I think what I, what I see here is that you know, sometimes in ministry we teach other people, sometimes in ministry other people teach us. And I think in Paul's case, when he went to Philippi, you know, he didn't want to go to Philippi. He wanted to go somewhere else and 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 the Spirit moved him to Philippi. And he didn't want to have a ministry with slave slave girls because he didn't want to have to tangle with their owners and handlers. He wanted to have a ministry with people like Lydia. And he didn't want to deal with with uh, prison guards because, you know, nobody wants to deal with prison guards. <laughs> but those were the people who, who God led him to and those were the places where God worked. And I think this was a place a time and a place in Paul's life where God showed him the breath of the gospel and showed him the power of God to to work with unlikely people in unlikely ways. It It showed him things that then became a major agenda item for him. If you're familiar with the writings of Paul, he has several magisterial expositions of the gospel, like the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, and where, where he really very directly steps out to explain what the gospel means. And one of the things that all of these books have in common is a very pointed critique of racism. Because in each because because Paul cannot expound justification by faith, Paul cannot say at length what the gospel is without very directly and very very bluntly com- confronting racism. And in, in Galatians chapter three, I could use examples from all the books, but in Galatians chapter three, Paul puts it this way, and I think this was a lesson that he learned at Philippi. He says, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. Maybe you've heard that verse before and uh, and, and, and some of you might be familiar with it, but you've got to understand that this was a radical thing for Paul to say. This was a radical thing for Paul to teach and to preach in his day and age, because this is not the way people think. We kind of expect the Bible to say this, but, but in Paul's days, people didn't expect the Bible to say this. This was something that, that was shocking to people. But Paul shows us that you can't explain the gospel without critiquing racism. You can't apply the, the gospel without addressing racism, because it's one of the ways we justify ourselves apart from the gospel. And you got to understand this as well that in our day, you know, this is consistent with uh, with uh, kind of kind of the public un- understanding of, of of how we see humanity. But in Paul's day, this was an absolutely radical way of looking at people because the Jews of of Paul's days were highly nationalistic. They thought, they believed that they were God's chosen people and everybody was on the outside was much lesser than. And even in the grand intellectual traditions of the ancient world, you know, the the writings of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and and all the enlightenment that came through them, one thing that they didn't address or one thing that they didn't teach, one thing that, that was not that didn't grow out of that tradition was a belief in the universal dignity of humanity, the equality of all people everywhere. This was, was a revolutionary idea in Paul's day, and it's just the, a measure of the progress of the revolution that, that Paul started that this became more mainstream in our day to where when they're framing the Declaration of Independence, they say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That idea, that concept, you got to understand that, that that came from Paul. That was Paul's idea. That was a New Testament idea that was then brought into the mainstream of the way we see things. Uh, Paul learned that lesson, that life-changing lesson, that world-changing lesson. He learned it, when God moved through him at Philippi, a city that he didn't even want to go to. And that, I think, was Paul's debt to the church at Philippi. It's a challenge to us, I think, you know, where we are today is everybody affirms these things. Everybody can quote the Declaration of Independence and say this is what we believe about humanity, but we still tend to be tribal, we still tend to be nationalistic, we still tend to be prejudiced, and we still tend to gravitate towards people we can connect with. But the family of God is the place where we share our DNA as the children of our Father in heaven. And the gospel is a message that before God, all of us are precious in his sight. And when the gospel is at work, I think one of the signs is that these barriers are broken down. When the gospel retreats and the church becomes just another religious institution, that's when we can expect it to become more like a club that certain people fit into and certain certain people don't. In our day, this ideology is in place even though socially and practically and functionally we are as fragmented as we ever were. But when the gospel is at work it breaks down barriers, it builds up bonds because we're all connected, all connected in Christ. So when the gospel is at work, the slaves are set free but at the same time the free become servants of Christ and are willing to serve. When the gospel's at at work, the weak become strong, and the strong realize they need to depend on Christ. When the gospel's at work, the rich realize their only hope is to be dependent on the charity and the mercy of God in heaven. And when the gospel's at work, the poor have new hope because they realize their sons and daughters of the king of the universe. This is what happens when Christ is lifted up in our midst. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the picture we have of the gospel at work in the book of Philippians. I pray that the gospel would be at work in Jersey City today and that uh, our church would reflect these dynamics as well. We pray in His holy name. Amen. Amen.